In this episode of 2036, the podcast. I think as we think about the kinds of things that contribute to, as a clinician called big T and little t traumas, mm. you know, when we hold marginalized identities and we live in a place where those identities are not accepted, where it's fundamentally on a minute by minute basis feels unsafe, that's traumatic. It gets into the groundwater of the, the lives that we lead. Part of my learning and my growth as a professional, as a human in this world, and certainly as an administrator is, you know, how do I leverage my identities and the access I have, the, the privileges that I have to help create space for those who may not automatically, because of our society, have that space and voice so that they can use them and help inform all of us. Hello and welcome to 2036, the podcast. My name is Munir McJohnny. Today with us, we have James Raper, who is the inaugural Associate Vice President of Health, Wellbeing, Access, and Prevention. In his role, he oversees Counseling and Psychological Services, CAPS, the Office of Health Promotion, the Office of Respect and Student Health Services, SHS. Raper comes to Emory from Wake Forest University in June. At Wake Forest, he served as the first Assistant Vice President for Health and Wellbeing. He has more than 20 years of experience in higher education in the areas of direct counseling and consultation, collaborative strategic planning, administrative leadership, and classroom teaching. Raper holds a PhD in counseling and clinical supervision from Syracuse University. Thank you and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. In just reading your bio when I was reading it over earlier, the Office of Respect and Student Health Services. Tell me a little bit more about that. The Office of Respect focuses on survivors of relationship and sexual violence on campus, as well as their allies. So we want to make sure that all students who identify as potentially being a survivor, who have questions about whether they might, might identify as being a survivor, or if they are a friend, uh, a loved one who wants to know how to best support one of their loved ones around that, so that's the office that, that would want. Uh, them through those processes. Are you seeing that that sort of trauma in, in the acts that lead to that are increasing or decreasing given kind of the world that we live in today where we're more aware of our actions? And then is that kind of convoluted by more folks maybe more open to having those conversations about it as well? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a hard question to answer whether or not it's happening more in part because we have the wonderful experience of people feeling more empowered to name their experiences as mm -hmm. survivors and expanding what we mean by trauma. And we now understand much more deeply uh, with much more nuance how being exposed to our experiences where our life may be threatened, but also our just sense of safety is threatened or we're exposed to that even in an adjunct way that that impacts our body and our brain for a very long time. So the more awareness we have, when we then intersect increasing awareness with increasing opportunities to use our voice and then more support services that name that as this is the place to come to talk about that or to learn more about that, we're going to have more incidents of stories around that. The way we heal is through being able to talk about that in a safe place. Yeah. And to start to be able to talk about that, do you think it's the creation of safe spaces? Do you think it's finally a acknowledging that victim blaming has been happening for so long? Or do you think it's how society or even the campus at Emory has become more open to having these conversations? Yeah, I think, of course, it's an intersection of all those things. I think as we think about um, the kinds of things that contribute to, as a clinician called big T and little t traumas, mm. you know, when we hold marginalized identities and we live in a place where those identities are not accepted, where it's fundamentally on a minute by minute basis feels unsafe, that's traumatic. It gets into the groundwater of the, the lives that we lead. And certainly holding the privileged identities I hold, part of my learning and my growth as a professional, as a human in this world, and certainly as an administrator is 
you know, how do I leverage my identities and the access I have, the, the privileges that I have to help create space for those who may not automatically, because of our society, have that space and voice so that they can use them and help inform all of us. So in a separate conversation that we have on the podcast with Dean Galai, we talk about how these things are popping up now, right? For generations, we had students graduate from Emory without the need for these things. A lot of those individuals may say that students now just aren't thick-skinned enough or don't have the grit that needs to be resilient. What do you say to that? This is like one of my favorite questions because mostly I love pushing really hard against it. What I have to acknowledge and I invite all of my contemporaries and, you know, the generation before me and the generation after to consider that students nowadays, this generation of the traditionally aged college student have been exposed to much more in their, let's say, 20 years of life than any one of us were in those first 20 years of our lives, which are, as we all know, we think about it, fundamental to our development later on. And for our students, they've been post 9-11, they've been post social media, they've been post smartphones, post many, you know, decades long war, as well as having to prepare for active shooters in their elementary and middle school and and high schools. If we just acknowledge all those things, the hypervigilance that can create in our brains when they are still forming is significant. And it's, I think, it's unfortunate if anyone were to think this is about fragility. I think they're incredibly resilient. They're telling us this is what their needs are. And I believe our job and it's why I love working at, in higher education in a place like Emory is we have this intimate community where we actually can frame and scale our services to meet students where they are so that when they do graduate, they're prepared for the world that awaits them. So you talked a lot about your desire to come to Emory and why you wanted to come here. What are some of your immediate goals to help ensure students' well-being and growth? So my shorthand for what well-being is that every member of our community can bring their full selves to being here at Emory. But that may sound like a little bit of a cliche even. Mm -hmm. I really mean it. And so what that can look like is, you know, if I'm a first-generation student, am I able to fully access all that Emory has to offer to support my sense of well-being, of leading a life that is fulfilling, of academic and intellectual as well as personal relational growth? If I am someone who inhabits a larger body, fill in the blank, that's those same kinds of questions? Am I someone who holds some other kind of marginalized identity that are intersecting? Do I see myself represented here in a way that makes me feel like I can present all of myself in a safe way that's supported and invited, not just tolerated. When we have a community that does that, that is a more well community. When we have a community that doesn't look at happiness as the goal. Again, I'm a therapist. Happiness for me is not the goal. It's the ability to be a human is the goal. And if we create spaces where I can have a day where I'm feeling depressed, I can have five days where I'm feeling depressed, or I'm having struggle with my anxiety, I'm just having mental health, that that's all normalized and not that I can only talk about the times I'm doing great. And then maybe if I'm very lucky, find a counselor or a pastor or an imam I can talk it out with. But this is all accepted, normalized. And in a community, everyone feels like they own a sense of self-efficacy that I know how to help someone who's experiencing their mental health that day. That's one particular way that I, I see us as a community being able to grow in really important ways. You also have a lot of training in experience in suicide prevention. 
How do you plan on bringing that in and kind of really folding that into the Emory community? When I think about what I've learned in 20 years of being in suicide prevention and intervention and, and how do we take those themes and then broaden them to not be only about suicide, it's about being able to talk about hard things. Right. One of the misconceptions that folks have about talking about suicide is that if we name the word, if we ask the question, right. when's the last time you thought about suicide, that it's going to put it in someone's head. And we know through tons and tons of research over and over again. Not only does it not increase risk, asking the question actually decreases the right. risk. Because it destigmatizes it for the person. Yes. And it gives them permission in a way that sometimes because of stigma, they've kept this secret. And so now it's, oh, wait a minute, you presented this in a way that maybe you're a safe person. I could actually name this. And one of the fundamental interventions is connection. So mm -hmm. the suicidal mind is very much one that feels incredibly isolated, even when they're surrounded by people and loved ones. And so the more that we can lower the bar for relationship, the more we can mm. demonstrate in a one-on-one -on -one way that I am here demonstrating my love and compassion for you, that helps to decrease the, the grip that sometimes thoughts of suicide have. Yeah. And so how do we create safe systems so mm. that there are people able to use their voices my goal in this first particularly year or so is to make sure I'm looking at both quantitative data, so large-scale assessments looking at health and well-being of our students, and just as importantly, if not more so, the individual and of one qualitative stories. What are their experiences with accessing services on campus? How have they experienced health, well-being, mental health on campus? By really demonstrating, I'm actually open to hearing what's going on here, then and only then can we really develop a strategy to meet your community's needs. What do you think five, 10 years from now will be the most visible changes due to your work at Emory? My vision for like a, a more well campus here yeah. is one where we're able to talk openly without shame about all of our humanity. We're able to support students in all of their identities when their needs present, and they're able to feel comfortable on their end, raising their hand, you know, literally or figuratively, I think I need something right now. And I'm not yeah. quite sure what it is, actually, because I'm still, by the way, a college student figuring out life. <laughs> Absolutely. And that we are structured um, and resourced to meet those needs, that our physical spaces are inviting and reflective of the integrative and collaborative mm -hmm. work that has to happen in a college and a university. And that's one of the real opportunities that Emory has in front of it is to push against the natural silos that exist at any institution. To do holistic work, you have to be collaborative. And so in some ways, holism and, and siloing are antithetical. And we need to make sure that we are breaking down those silos as much as possible, whether it's around communication or deep, deep collaboration and how mental health, spiritual meaning, nutrition intersect, for example. One of the things that I read about you is that you've worked on collaborative strategic planning. In the world today where everything seems so binary, so polarized, how do we go about doing that? How I'm doing it so far, which is the way I would do it, I'm, I'm sure there are many ways to do it, is to first find out who are the positional leaders who are most invested in the work that they have brought me here to do. I'm calling those mm -hmm. my champions. And I look at the folks who are on the search committee, just to get it really operational, the search yeah. of people on my search committee, <laughs> they've known me for from the very beginning, right. last October. They've spent the time just to try to recruit people to apply for this position and to be invested in the work that it's going to do. And this includes students, by the way. I want to go to them and say, all right, talk to me more and then tell me who else I need to meet with. And so this is the snowball sampling approach mm. of listening to stories 
understanding the different positions. What are the themes here? What are the biggest gaps? What are the things that are most critical for us to resource or address or massage? And then develop some planning for that. And then I want to balance that out with what does the data say? Mm. And how does our data at Emory compare to our comparison universities, our aspirant universities, and see kind of how we're doing? That also will help inform developing strategy. I'm really, really attentive to the folks who do not have voice because it's much more likely, everything else being equal, that we're going to have students who or others who have positional power are going to be more likely to have a a greater sense of well-being than those who are marginalized and silenced. And collecting those stories have been incredibly valuable. Eventually, those will turn into themes that will then turn into programs, uh, resources, and uh, longer-term strategies. And I think that you nailed it. It's definitely long-term strategy. It's not something that you can come in and say, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to do it without listening first. For any students, alums, or anyone else listening to this, having champions in your quarter, no matter what field you're in, are so important. I have a folder on my phone that I call my kitchen cabinet. And those are the individuals that I would gather if I'm making decisions about my life, business, work, whatever it is. Those are the people that I would reach out to to kind of really be my champions. And it's something that I think is cross-culture that we can do. One last thing that I wanted to touch on that has recently been developing a lot more is the impact of trauma long term. There's an article that I read a while back that talked about even how slavery is getting built into the DNA of black communities. Can you expand a little bit more on the impact that it is having? And is there new groundbreaking research that's doing this or is it just something that hasn't been studied in the past? I think what we know more is that we don't know enough about how it shows up. Partly, I think, because we tend to silence ourselves mm. for all the reasons we've already talked about and that we can engage in self-blame. If I I do not hold marginalized identities, but my colleagues, friends, peers, partners who do have shared with me their experiences of questioning themselves because we live in a society that white supremacy exists, those who do not hold those identities can sometimes choose to, to, to feel like they have to say, well, it must be me, as opposed to owning that this is about something much larger and much more insidious that we have to reckon with as, a, as an institution. And, and so if I am going to make this about me selfishly, then what I do have control over is how, again, how I leverage my position and ascribe power to address those things. So I'll give you a quick little example. When I was hiring uh, our our CAPS uh, executive director and in our first round interview, I put in a question about how inviting to consider how would you as a executive director address the issue of white supremacy Mm. and how it shows up in the mental health of our students. And I did it because I think it's important to acknowledge. I also did it to signal the kind of director I wanted in terms of candidates to be interested in. And for folks who are like, that feels uncomfortable for me to talk about, then that's important. That's okay. But that's important for me to know. And then what was a really unintended consequence, and the reason I picked on this uh, as an example, is that I've gotten feedback both times I did these searches that this was actually ended up being a recruiting tool. They began talking in their communities about this question that's being asked. And there's not a right answer to it, but the ability to talk openly and say the word white supremacy, just like you were talking earlier about saying the word suicide, saying these things that we know exist and it's the water that we're all swimming in, but we feel shame or anxiety or whatever to name, it really does help us transcend send through those things to maybe dress them a little bit more openly yeah and honestly I genuinely really appreciate everything that you're bringing, not just to our table in this podcast, but to Emory. I'm so excited to see this vision that you have for it come to life. 
Thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And to those listening, I hope that you will take away that everything starts with listening, whether it's suicide prevention or creating a safe space. Listen to your people. Don't get fooled by this binariness of happiness, but rather pursue things that bring you meaning and purpose and find your kitchen cabinets to be your champions. Thank you once again for joining us. On the next episode of 2036, the podcast. I think it's the resiliency, the grit, the, the capacity and the ability to fight through obstacles because you have to as an athlete. You're not always going to win. And so athletes tend to be very, very good at pushing themselves beyond the point of being uncomfortable. And that can translate to the workforce. Leadership skills are another great trait that athletes learn in their sport. Time management is another. You know, these are all transferable skills that make them great hires. Join host Munir Mekjani and Keiko Price, Emory Athletics Director, as they consider the relationship between movement, resiliency, and well-being. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about 2036, Emory's campaign to transform the future, visit 2036.emory.edu.